This is Straight Talk in the COVID Economy, and my name is Larry Quick. Our world has changed and there's no going back. The COVID economy is now very real. We are adapting to telework, Zooming, online learning and new industries like PanSafe and other opportunities revealed by COVID-19. The challenges are also with us. Bankruptcies, unemployment, debt and confusion. In Straight Talk in the COVID economy, we meet thinkers and innovators who bring insight and information into the opportunities and risks of our rapidly emerging COVID economy. Straight Talk in the COVID economy is brought to you by Resilient Futures. This is alongside our partner, Impact Africa Network. Impact Africa Network is a non-profit startup studio in Nairobi on a mission to ensure young, talented Africans have a chance at participating in the digital transformation of Africa as creators and owners. If grassroots change is something that excites you, visit www.impactafrica.network. By doing that, you'll be able to support as donors and mentors the Impact Africa Network. Hi, and welcome everyone uh, to this uh, edition or episode of Straight Talk in the COVID Economy. We're very blessed today to have two economists with us. Um, and I say that with great favour um, because we've got so much going on in the world that it's going to take a lot of understanding and feedback for business and organisations in general to sort out what's going on. We're sort of seeing this as a, a tsunami with the COVID economy um, or the, the new COVID normal and the new COVID economy that's coming. So. We're delighted to have two people with us today, um, Al Audrey uh, Lubo Polo and also Saul Eslake. So let me give uh, a welcome to Audrey and Saul. Thank you, Larry. Nice to be with you here. Exciting to be here with you both. Thank you very much. <laughs> so let me give a bit of background on Saul. Saul operates his own consultancies, and I think I've got this right in terms of Corinna. That's right. Economist Advisory. Um, economic advisory and is a renowned economist as if you don't what if you don't watch TV you can get away with not knowing Saul he's a common name uh, on all Australian TV if not uh, globally uh, with a very highly distinguished career he also happens to be vice chancellor's fellow at the University of Tasmania with with Rufus uh, down there as new vice chancellor um, and uh, he began his professional career in 79 at the Australian Treasury it seems like we've got a bit of a a thing going on here because that's a bit of Audrey's background too. That was in Canberra and moved on to becoming the chief economist of Macintosh Securities, the National Mutuals Funds Management, the ANZ Australian New Zealand Bank uh, and the Bank of America Merrill Lynch Australia New Zealand. And he was also previously economic advisor to Jeff Kennett um, when in my view there's a, a lot of very good uh, transformative decisions made around particularly the Victorian economy. Uh, more recently, has worked with the think tank uh, Grattan, Institute, uh, Grattan Institute as director of its productivity growth program, and he joins us today uh, with Resilient, Resilient Futures Straight Talk in the COVID Economy. Welcome, Saul. Thank you, Larry. Nice to be here. Great. And joining us also is our very own uh, Audrey Lobo-Polo um, from Con Resilient Futures Conditions Watch. Uh, Audrey uh, leads Conditions Watch and Resilient Futures. Now, she has degrees in two pretty interesting areas, physics and economic policy. Don't ask me how they go together. I didn't get past year 12. Um, and over 10 years of experience as a policy advisor working uh, with the Australian uh, Treasury, as Saul has done in the past as well. Now, Audrey is an accredited warm data host. Let me explain that. That's 
working with people and finding out what people are thinking in forums, I guess, and I think everybody can explain that better than me. And loves working with complexity in areas such as conditions analysis for business and government, for strategy and for government in terms of public policy. And she's got a very highly qualified penchant for artificial intelligence. Now she's worked with a lot of global organizations, including LinkedIn, Netflix, and the Canadian Energy Regulator, and also the Human Rights Commission. That's a very interesting background and is currently on the board of Open Data Australia. So welcome, uh, Audrey. I'm so excited to be here with you both. Can't wait to begin this incredible discussion. Yeah, me too. I, um, but I'm going to be a bit out of my depth because, as I say, I, I'm, I can't even call myself an economic rationalist uh, because I did one unit of economics and um, that was about it. So I'm dealing with my... Uh, Enough to make you dangerous, Larry. It's Okay, so just a bit of background. We're seeing this time, and particularly um, the, uh, the idea of a recession, we're talking about global meltdown in a lot of different ways. Uh, and when I say global meltdown, it's like a perturbation of, of um, uh, iron ore to create something else. So uh, meltdown always means something, something new. And we're seeing that great economic reset um, uh, towards the new COVID economy. And we're really seeing that uh, very rapidly start to emerge. Uh, and even that is creating, obviously, some uh, COVID-19 has created a huge amount of disruption for jobs, households and governance at a global level. But also, there's a lot of will in people to try and get back to the past, which I think we'd all agree is pretty impossible. Um, and what we have to start to do is invest in new types of um, uh, industries and jobs to really make sure they fit this COVID normal or new COVID normal and new COVID economy. So I'm really interested in uh, getting everyone's view on that. But particularly in the case where we've identified in our work as when you're trying to keep hold on to something that's just going to is bound to go away because the conditions don't support it we go into a state of managed adaptive decline or MAD. And that's where you work very hard uh, to try and stay in an old, say, business as usual framework, but you're declining in a very well-managed way. So we're hoping that Australia, given our, our scale, our capability, and also our remoteness, can actually uh, get together and work and innovate on what can be taken from what is, is um, good from the past but creating a new future. Um, so this tsunami of change, um, we have to really start to understand what the conditions are that underpin it and what are we facing, particularly the people we work with are asking the question, well, if, if the past is not going to be the future, what does the future start to look like? We know that's complex, but what we're looking to do is to understand the environment that we face bit by bit, because it obviously doesn't show up as clearly as, it, as the past has done for us when we're making business decisions. So my first question to Saul would be, how do you see the COVID economy play out from an economic perspective? My starting point to answer that question, Larry, is that you know, we, like almost every other country in the world, is finding ourselves in the middle of a worst recession in our living memory, and in most cases, the worst since the 1930s. 
And it's a very different recession from any of the ones that we do have either some historical memory or statistical record of, bearing in mind that there actually weren't a lot of statistics being collected in the 1930s during the Great Depression. Uh, most of the recessions we do know something about have been caused by some combination of excessively tight monetary policy, that is, interest rates having been, with the benefit of hindsight, too high for too long, and or a financial crash. Um, you know, the, the global financial crisis, which wasn't officially a recession in Australia, though it was in most countries, was probably more of the second than of the first. But most of the other recessions that Australia has had in the post-war period, the one of the early 60s, the one of the mid-70s, the one of the early 80s, and the one of the early 90s in particular, were all the result in large part of uh, monetary policy having been too tight for too long, combined with other countries, especially the United States, being in recession because their monetary policy had been too tight for too long. And this is completely different from that. We went into the recession with interest rates at pretty close to record lows. Um, our economy here in Australia had been slowing for some time for reasons that I think are important if the question is, can we get back to where we were before COVID hit? Because I don't think that's where we want to be if we want to have a better future is where we were before COVID actually hit us. Um, but this is a recession that has been deliberately brought on by government policy. Uh, for a good reason, that is to protect lives and to prevent deaths. And it's sort of interesting to observe when you look around the world, that there's a pretty clear correlation between how serious the recessions have been and how effective countries have been in minimising deaths. You look at countries like Sweden, for example, which thought that they could get away without imposing much by way of restrictions on which the things their people could do. As it's turned out, most Swedes have chosen not to do most of the things that other people in other countries have been prohibited from doing. So they have had a worse experience of the virus than many similar countries, but haven't really had much of a better economic experience. And then you look at countries that have had a horrible experience of the virus, like within Europe, Spain and Italy, or the United States itself, or in emerging markets, countries like Peru and Colombia and Mexico, and of course, India, and they've had a terrible economic experience as well. Whereas most of the countries that have done, uh, have done well, at least done not so badly economically as others, are also ones that have done pretty well in uh, containing the virus. So countries like Taiwan, for example, or Vietnam, or even notwithstanding the pain that people in Victoria have especially felt as a result of the second wave, Australia's uh, 6.3% decline in real GDP over the year to the uh, June quarter, which is the worst annual decline we've had since we started measuring quarterly GDP, and probably the worst annual decline since at least 1946, if not the early 1930s, is actually about the uh, eighth best outcome of the 62 economies that have so far reported GDP figures. So, uh, yes, this has been tough for Australians, but it hasn't been nearly as tough as it has been for a whole lot of people in a whole lot of other countries, uh, both ones that are similar to us and ones that for different reasons are very different. Um, government policy here has been, as the Prime Minister said, focused on building a bridge to the other side. And what I think the Prime Minister means by that is 
providing support to incomes and households, providing income support to households and businesses so that as many of them as possible can survive the period when things have had to be shut down in order to minimise the risks to people's health and lives. Uh, we sort of now get a better handle of how long that bridge needs to be because Victoria aside, we can sort of see where we're going to land and roughly speaking, how the restrictions are going to be eased and how we're going to open up. What I think we've got a need to start thinking about, um, both you know, as investors and observers, but also the government as policymakers, is what sort of roads do we want to have on the other side of the bridge once we get to it? What sort of economy do we want to try and create? What sort of sectors do we want to encourage? What sort of things did we used to do that we don't want to go back to? And there are a lot of policy changes in that, which I assume we're going to spend some of the next little while talking about. Um, but there, that's my sort of sense of, a, of where we are here. We will not make sustainable progress in building a new economy until we are on top of the virus. I don't know, and I don't think anybody at this stage does know whether getting on top of the virus means finding a vaccine that effectively allows us to be immune from the virus in future, or whether it means kind of living with the fact that the virus is still going to be there circulating in our midst. And from time to time, we're going to have to have the, we will have the occasional outbreak and we will have to find ways of dealing with that that don't involve shutting down the economy again for extended yeah. periods of time. I don't think we know the answer to that question yet, but I think what we can say with a fair degree of confidence is that if we can't get on top of the virus, we can't really begin to start the task of planning the post-COVID world. Yeah, it's that sort of that um, COVID normal that has suddenly crept <clears throat> into the narrative that uh, uh, starts to, to, to put people um, you know, because I think what they're looking for as far as COVID's concerned is um, a, uh, if we get a vaccine, it's all going to be done. We're mostly going to get treatments before we get vaccine, but how long will that take? Uh, what will the efficacy of that be? Who will take it? Who won't? So, you know, in our view, we're sort of talking about well into 2021 before anyone's got a sense of that. But what we're going to have to do is live and understand what this COVID normal behaviour is and what we're seeing emerge in that is the COVID economy with some of those that you're talking about. So, you know, for instance, we're seeing um, with, say, with um, telework, we're seeing a telework industry grow up to support that. You know, better to be in that yeah. than be a barista these days. We're also seeing what we call pan safe, where it's, you know, how do you, how do you become pandemic safe in, the, in a COVID normal environment? There's an industry in that. But before we go down that track of what's there for us in the future, just thinking about the stability of the global economy, because we're doing okay. We, we, we um, dodged a machine gun bullet with the GFC uh, and um, uh, the, um, the GFC hasn't necessarily gone away. Some of the, a lot of those uh, underlying features of the GFC, the global financial crisis, are still there. We're still there in COVID. So from a global perspective, the stability of the global economy sounds like it's very, very fragile. Now, not going into great detail, because obviously that's a huge question, but particularly around our two biggest trading partners, or two of our biggest trading, trading partners, USA and China. We look at the USA and we won't go on too much about the Donald, um, but 
looking at that, my view, having done a lot of work in economic development there on the ground, the micro level, um, I, I see failure in so many levels. Systemic failure that is got to create, got to go its path, irrespective of what Trump's done. And the second is we've just pulled a, a, a war of words, at least, if not more, with China. So how do you see that playing out from a global perspective in terms of the uh, businesses that rely on uh, either um, import or export from a China or a USA perspective? Yeah, well, there's a, there's a lot of things wrapped up in that, Larry, but let me try and pick out three of them that I think are particularly important. First, I think you're absolutely right to draw attention to the lingering effects of the global financial crisis. You know, we in Australia were to some extent shielded from many of those effects by our mining boom you know, that sort of ran, well, the GFC interrupted it. I suppose the mining boom really began about 2005. The GFC interrupted it for a while, but then it resumed in full force, not so much because of anything we did in Australia, but because of what China was doing. Yeah. And you know, that continued until probably 2015. And in some ways, there are aspects of it that we're still seeing, including the fact that the iron ore price, which, you know, Treasury in the last five budgets has assumed would go back to $55 a tonne. You know, as we're recording, this is still around 130 US dollars yeah, a tonne. Exactly. So, there are, you know, there are elements of it that we're still living with. But in particular, the mining boom shielded Australia from the wage stagnation that had set in in the United States beginning in the early 90s, that had been experienced in most other developed economies from the early 2000s onwards, but which we didn't really start to see until about 2015-16. And then, although it's easy to forget now, that was probably the biggest single policy challenge that we had before COVID hit, was what to do about this stagnation of wages. And as Phil Lowe, the governor of the Reserve Bank, said in a speech that he gave in 2018, this persistently slow wage growth was undermining Australian sense of shared prosperity. And as he warned, if it were to continue, it might make needed economic reforms much more difficult. And I think that's still going to be true in the post-COVID world, given that, you know, as everyone's forecasts say, wages growth is going to be even lower for the foreseeable future than it was in the pre-COVID world, because we're going to have higher unemployment and lower inflation than we otherwise would have had, I think. So, um, yeah, and one other dimension of that that's worth noting, at least in passing, of course, is that at the beginning of this pandemic, central banks embarked on bigger amounts of quantitative easing than those central banks who did quantitative easing during the global financial crisis did. And moreover, more central banks are now doing it than did it during the global financial crisis. So, you know, we've got Japan, the Fed, the Bank of England and the European Central Bank doing more QE as a proportion of GDP than they did in 2008, 9 and beyond. Plus, we've got other central banks like the Bank of Canada and our own Reserve Bank of Australia and the Reserve Bank of New Zealand and most of the other Asian central banks in you know, Korea, Indonesia, Philippines and others in the emerging world 
doing their own versions of QE. And one of the consequences of that, of course, has been to further inflate the price of assets. So the sort of instability in financial markets that was always a concern before the GFC and then after the GFC, because the main impact of quantitative easing was to inflate asset prices, uh, we've done it again. And I suppose yep. the one comfort you can draw is that policymakers seem to have learnt one of the important lessons from the aftermath of the GFC, which is not to turn off the fiscal policy taps too soon. Yes. You know, um, we probably in Australia, we should have turned them off earlier than we did because we had the mining boom. And if we had turned them off earlier than we did, the Reserve Bank probably wouldn't have needed to raise interest rates as they did between September 09 and late 2011. And the currency then probably wouldn't have gone up as far as it did if the Reserve Bank hadn't needed to raise rates. But we were sort of an outlier in that. Yeah. The problem for the rest of the world was that, in particular, the United States, Germany and the UK, through the switch to fiscal austerity in 2010, far too soon after the global financial crisis, and most of them had a pretty miserable decade for the for the period after that. And then, you know, the COVID recessions have just made it worse. So at least we're not seeing governments wanting to throw fiscal policy into reverse too soon. There's a problem in the United States where they can't agree on what sort of fiscal policy they should have after the initial measures have expired. But elsewhere in the developed world, we're seeing even the Germans, you know, put the fiscal austerity to one side and you know, agree with France to help create this huge fiscal stimulus package for Europe as a whole that's going to avoid some of the policy mistakes that Europe made around the time of the Greek crisis in 2012. And likewise, we're seeing other governments, including our own, you know, clearly commit to what are going to be unprecedentedly large and elongated fiscal policy packages. So I think all of that is a very good thing. So that was the first part of my answer to your question, which is to pick up that sort of connection or continuity between the post-GFC era and the COVID and the post-COVID world. The second thing you uh, asked me to reflect on was what's going on in the United States. And if I can say this, I suppose, um, you know, we're not supposed to be too politically biased in our commentary. And I normally think to, to paraphrase something the Americans say, normally I don't have a dog in the hunt of American <laughs> elections. You know, it doesn't. Horse in the race. <laughs> yeah, it hasn't really bothered me, you know, who won between, say, George Bush and John Kerry in 2004 or Obama and McCain in, or McCain, Obama and Romney in 2012. You know, I might have had a marginal preference, but as an Australian citizen, it didn't bother me all that much. Whereas at this election, I can't think of an election where I have more wanted the incumbent to lose than this one since the Tasmanian election of 1989, when uh, Robin Gray, who was the premier of Tasmania at the time, someone who had done more damage to the social and economic fabric of Tasmania uh, than any other single individual over the course of his lifetime, you know, was running for a third term in office and lost. And all I can say is Robin Gray's the sort of person whose funeral I would want to go to if only to make sure that he was really good. And, so you're you saying know, the same for Donald? Yeah, I'd say the same for Trump. So, you know, one of the complications in the post-COVID world, to come back to the topic, is the erosion of respect elsewhere in the world for US competence, commitment and leadership has just been so eroded. 
Now, to be fair, that didn't start under Trump. You know, some of it's probably started a long time ago. Certainly, George W. Bush didn't enhance um, world perceptions of, say, U.S. competence in the military sphere or in the economic policy-making sphere because of the large budget deficits that were run on his watch and the uh, incompetent supervision of financial markets that helped contribute to the GFC. Although, of course, the Europeans were almost as bad in their macro-prudential policy failings at that time, but certainly that eroded respect for US leadership. Uh, you know, Obama's unwillingness to hold countries to account for crossing red lines that he drew, most obviously in Syria. Also, you know, I think has contributed to an erosion of respect for US leadership. And it certainly led Xi Jinping to conclude that he can do a lot more of what he wants to do in our part of the world, knowing that whatever the Americans say, they won't actually do anything. And I think that has emboldened the Chinese to do a lot of the things that they've been doing in recent years in the South China Sea. And now more recently to start picking fights with almost all of their neighbors, you know, India, Vietnam, Malaysia, India, Indonesia to impose their draconian security laws on the people of Hong Kong in flagrant contradiction of the one country, two systems uh, commitment that Deng Xiaoping made uh, ahead of the handover in 99 and, um, and the much more threatening stance that they're now taking to Taiwan, which potentially could be a flashpoint for the next administration. You know, it wouldn't surprise you if Xi Jinping wanted to test a newly elected Biden administration over Taiwan in the same way that Khrushchev sought to test the newly elected Kennedy administration over putting missiles in Cuba at that time. So that's something to worry about. But the other more important thing, Larry, is that the uh, what, what people call the global liberal rules-based international order on which the prosperity of the post-World War II world was built and which, you know, which allowed China to become rich, and which allowed before that other Asian economies like Korea and Taiwan and Singapore and Hong Kong to dredge themselves up from being poorer 50 years ago than most African countries were, to being in many cases you know, richer than we are, which Singapore is, or in Korea's case, almost as rich as Japan will be, and in three years will be richer than Japan. All of that was based on the liberal world trading order that depended on more than anything else, the willingness of the US to uphold that order and to enforce its rules. And under Trump in particular, the US has just walked away completely from that. You know, Trump has done more to tear down the international order and the means by the, the pillars on which it was built and the ways in which its rules were enforced than, you know, anyone than any of the US's enemies could have done if they had planned to do it. And I don't think that even if Biden wants to, which he probably does, he's not going to be able to restore that order. The world is going to become a more uncertain, a more disorderly place, and nothing can take the place of the United States. I mean, there's no other country that has the capacity to replace the US dollar as the world's principal reserve currency. The euro can't do it. The yuan certainly can't do it. And there aren't any other countries that are big enough for their currency to play that role. So from that sort of point of view, you know, just the, the poor way that the US has been governed 
since at least the turn of the century, but the dreadful way that it's been governed over the last four years and hopefully not over the next four years, you know, has made the international economy a less safe and a less stable place. And then turning finally to the third question you raised about China, you know, there's no doubt in my mind that what China has done over the last 30 years is one of the reasons why we went for almost 30 years without having a recession in the conventionally defined uh, way. You know, um, and we're almost unique in that respect because what China has done over the last, well, 40 years really, rather than the last 30, has been to emerge as the world's biggest exporter of manufactured goods and the world's biggest importer of commodities. And in doing that, what it's done is to push down the price of manufactured goods, which has been a big negative for most other rich countries who export manufactured goods. You know, they've lost jobs, they've lost export markets, they've lost income because they've been displaced from those markets by China. China has also pushed up the price of commodities because it imports them. And so do most other Western economies import commodities, oil, metals, energy commodities, grains and other agricultural commodities. So China's made most other Western economies worse off, not only by keeping competing away their exports, but also by adding to the prices they have to pay for their imports. We're about the only country in the world with a possible exception of Canada and maybe Norway for whom that's been a good thing because we are predominantly importers of manufactured goods. You know, we didn't really have much of a manufacturing sector to be competed away in the way that other countries did. And we're an exporter of commodities. So, you know, we're one of the few countries in the world that has benefit, few advanced economies that has benefited from what China has done. And uh, we're one of the few countries in the world that runs a trade surplus with China just as we're one of the few countries in the world that runs a trade deficit with the United States, which is probably the reason why Donald Trump hasn't been as rude to us and as dismissive of us as he has been to almost all of the other American allies, because Donald Trump's view of trade is so transactional that if you are running a surplus with the United States, you must be cheating rather than simply reflecting normal patterns of comparative advantage that most economists would understand. So Trump, the, the US runs a surplus with us, we mustn't be cheating. Whereas in fact, of course, if there's any cheating going on there, it's the United States, which refuses to buy a lot of our agricultural products and won't even buy our fast ferries for the defense forces, even though if you want to catch a ferry from anywhere in the northeast of Canada, northeast of the United States to Canada, you'll go on a ferry that was made here in Tasmania because that's not prohibited by the Jones Act. So, um, you know, the... Uh, we have derived extraordinary benefits as Australia that few other countries have shared from our relationship with China. And that's changed in a way that will not be restored easily, um, partly because China itself is shifting its growth mix. You know, the commodity intensity of China's economy has peaked and it will start to decline. The Chinese will continue to buy our iron ore at whatever price they have to pay for it in the near term, because they don't have any alternative. You know, uh, their own production is declining and declining quite steeply of iron ore, and for that matter of coal. Uh, our major competitor, Brazil, which is in any case a long way behind us in terms of their market share, has had problems of its own, both with 
tailings dam collapses at their major mines and with COVID outbreaks at their major mines, which have meant large parts of their workforce haven't been able to turn up for work. You know, Brazil will eventually get on top of those problems and the iron ore price won't stay at $130, probably beyond six months. But the thing that will ultimately pull the rug out from our iron ore trade is when China produces enough scrap steel that they can use that to make the new steel they need rather than having to make it out of iron ore and uh, coking coal. But that's probably not going to be until the 2030s. So the Chinese will continue to buy WA's iron ore and Queensland's metallurgical coal for the foreseeable future. But what that means is that when they want to throw their toys out of the cop because they think something one of our ministers have said has... It, offended the feelings of the Chinese people, which is their code for said or done something that the Communist Party of China doesn't like, what they're going to do is exact retribution from our other exports to China, uh, for which they do have alternatives. And however much we here in, for example, in Tasmania like to say that our beef or our wine or our seafood or in other states want to say that our barley uh, or whatever else is better than anyone else can produce, and maybe that's true, the fact is that they can get most of that stuff that's good enough from somewhere else in the world. And we now are in a position where, as the most recent trade figures show, that even with the strength of our iron ore and met coal sales to China, exports to China from Australia are declining in year-on-year -year terms. And that is not going to turn around. You know, China isn't trying to engineer the sort of recovery in its economy that they did after 2008-9. They sort of know that they actually overdid that and created a whole lot of problems in their own financial sector as a result of it, which they are very keen not to repeat. That's why they're not doing any mega stimulus in the way that they did before. The political relationship is not going to be easily restored. You know, Xi Jinping now clearly feels that China's moment in the sun has, has arrived. They don't need to follow Deng Xiaoping's dictum about hiding your capabilities and biding your time. They are picking deliberately picking fights with as many of their neighbours as they can. They know that the US is not going to be willing to shed blood and treasure to stop them in their tracks, as the US might have done in days gone by. And they're probably, as I said before, going to set a few tests for a newly installed Biden administration, or if he doesn't last very long, for a Kamala Harris administration at some point. And who knows how they will react, but they're just simply with the best will in the world, not as strong as the United States was for most of the 50 years after the end of the Cold War. So, you know, in that respect, and there's a couple of other ones just worth mentioning in passing from an Australian perspective as well, you know, we, after 30 years of economic growth, also owed a lot to a much faster rate of population growth than other Western countries. Our population grew at an average annual rate of 1.6% per annum over the 20 years to 2020. That was a percentage point above the average for our OECD countries. If we hadn't had that, we would have had at least one and possibly two recessions in the conventionally defined sense in the last 20 years. And population growth is not going to return because most of it came from migration. We're not having any migration at the moment. We won't have any migration until our international borders are opened, and that won't be at least until the middle of next year. And even when they are open, 
the government probably won't allow the same level of immigration as they did before because there are going to be a lot of other Australians who are unemployed and won't want migrants competing with them for jobs. So that driver of population of economic growth won't be there. And the other thing which I don't believe will be there and I certainly hope won't be there is the housing boom. You know, which took us, which gave us some of the most expensive residential real estate in the world. Fine if you owned it 30 years ago, but not if you're trying to get into it. And which also gave us the second or third level, highest level of household debt as a proportion of household income in the world, competing only with the Netherlands and Switzerland, which have a very different system of housing finance and a different way of taxing it from the way that we do. So, you know, I wouldn't want to see that repeating itself again. Uh, so, you know, if you look back on the last 20 years and say, how did we achieve three decades of growth without recession? You know, the three main things that gave it to us aren't going to be there in the in the 2020s, in the post-COVID world. We've got to figure out a different way of generating the sort of economic growth that we're going to need to have if we're going to put all the Australians who've lost their jobs over the last four months back to work. If we're going to start increasing our national prosperity at the rate that we thought we ought to be doing it rather than the rates we were doing it in the four years before the onset of COVID-19. And also if we want to be strong enough in other respects to keep our people safe in a world that's going to be much more insecure for, well, certainly for my lifetime, probably for Audrey's lifetime as well, since that's going to be longer than mine is, um, it, that world is going to be a lot less secure and we're going to need to be economically stronger if we want to you know, kind of be safer from aggressive other parties in the world economy. So you know, it sort of reminds you just... Put, pointing towards that economic safety, uh, because I totally agree that um, we can't rely on all the triggers you talked about, particularly uh, commodities. Um, uh, and look, looking to re-establish ourselves with the right, you know, we've always punched above our weight to a certain extent, but, you know, if we've, if we've gone up a class, um, we, well, we've got to go up a class to punch in an uncertain world. I know Audrey's interest in um, technology, uh, AI, Bitcoin and a whole range of different things. Audrey, you've got a question about digitization and automation as a way of shifting the conversation into the future. Yeah, I would love to, um, I'd love to get your thoughts all. I mean, you know, you, you've mentioned migration as being, you know, a, a bit of an issue uh, going forward. And um, we've got this big aging population that we need to you know, think about and how we support going forward. And, um, you know, you've also spoken a bit about the, um, the fiscal policy. And, you know, I think part of that is the tax policy piece as well that comes along with this and being able to support going forward. But do you see any structural changes in our economy, given that we're sort of moving away from this resources boom um, towards a greater digitization of jobs and automation of jobs? And I say this particularly in the context um, of the COVID economy, when there's so much more tele um, teleworking now than there has been in the past. And, um, you know, the need to rethink how we work and um, the fact that a lot of organisations are undergoing digital transformation and they've accelerated that path at this time. Do you see, how, like, how do you see that sort of playing um, in an economic sense in terms of that productivity piece? Yeah. Well, Audrey, I suspect you'd be able to answer that question better than I can because of the work that you've done in that space. But 
Uh, let me try and make a few observations about it. Uh, the first thing I'd say is thank goodness for the amount of digitization that we have had up to this point, because a moment's reflection will tell you how difficult it would have been to keep the lights on in the way that many businesses have been able to during the shutdown if it wasn't for the technological advances that have allowed us to work from home and to do conferences by the means that we're doing this one now. And, you know, all of those sorts of things to allow teams to collaborate on projects in a way that doesn't mean they have to be in the same office space at the same time. You know, if, if, the, if COVID had struck 20 years ago, the economic impact of it would have been much greater than it has been today, great as it has been, it would have been even bigger if we didn't have the technologies that we are now able to use in many industries to keep business going. I mean, they don't work everywhere. Obviously, you know, you can't do construction projects, you can't do agriculture from home in the way that a lot of white collar jobs can be done. And a lot of manufacturing, although that's become much more automated, is also something that you can't really do from home. But, you know, I think our experience of using technology to find ways around problems that COVID has thrown up is going to be very much part of the post-COVID world that people are going to be looking at ways that, you know, whether it's artificial intelligence or machine learning or different forms of communication, you know, are going to allow people to do things that help shape the COVID world. So I think that's absolutely a part of it. If we talk about a different dimension of structural change, there's a lot of talk around that says manufacturing will play a bigger part of the post-COVID world and that we should be encouraging that, that we will make Australia a manufacturing powerhouse again. Um, I wouldn't deny that there are areas of manufacturing in which we may well have a comparative advantage. And we should be exploiting this. Likewise, up to a point, I can understand that people might want to see greater self-reliance in some areas of production that are deemed strategic. But I think we ought to be very careful to avoid protectionist sentiment creeping in under the guise of that and to challenge the notion that just simply because we make something ourselves here at home, the supply of it is secure. And to take a practical example, suppose we were to uh, say, instead of being dependent on a single factory in Wuhan for the supply of widgets, the government subsidizes the creation of some factory in Brisbane to supply all of those widgets again. How much secure are our supply lines the next time there's a big flood in Brisbane? Or suppose, as I suspect will be possible, the government decides to subsidize the production of so the creation of some new factory in some marginal national party electorate to replace imports for the supply of something, again, let's call it widgets. How secure is that supply the next time that factory burns down in a bushfire? You know, which because of climate change is more likely. So this idea that because we can, if we onshore the production of something, we have automatically made it more secure is nonsense. You know, yes, we ought to be less dependent on China as a source of imports than we are, because we know that China is going to become in some respects more hostile to us. But replacing dependence on China with producing something at home may actually be less secure than developing relationships with three other countries that can supply us with that product more reliably 
at a cheaper price than we can do it ourselves. So as I say, I sort of get this idea that we might want to shore up our supply lines of things, but I don't necessarily buy the proposition that that means we have to make it all at home. But more broadly, what I'd say, Audrey, here is that there are reasons why Australians never been a manufacturing powerhouse. And the simplest way of putting that is that the sum of the different sectors' shares of GDP can't add up to more than 100%. Now, that might sound like a trivial thing to say, but it's amazing how many politicians don't get it. You know, we have one of the ways in which Australia is unusual is that mining is 10% of our GDP. You know, with the exception of a couple of other countries like Norway, where mining, if you define it to include oil and gas, is 15% of GDP, or Canada, where it's about nine. And a lot of that is oil and gas, too, and some of it's electricity that they you know, use hydropower in Quebec and Newfoundland and then send it down wires to New York. But for, apart from those two, no other advanced economy has a mining sector that's bigger than 4% of GDP, and for a lot of them, it's two or less. And likewise, we have a slightly bigger agricultural sector. You know, it's about two and a half, three percent of our GDP. And most other Western countries, it's less than one percent of GDP. And there are reasons why we have a big mining sector. I mean, it just so happens that our country sits on top of and is surrounded by unusually rich mineral deposits. And if we were not to exploit them, then we would be worse off. You know, if we didn't sell the iron ore at the high prices we're able to sell it to, or the coal or the gas, or if we weren't to produce the cotton and the wheat and the barley and the wool that we do produce, that represents a bigger share of our economy than it does of others, we would be worse off. Now, the other point here, so, you know, one of the reasons we, why we have a bigger, a smaller manufacturing sector than most countries is because we have a bigger mining sector and a bigger agricultural sector. Another reason is that, you know, we're a rich country and a look around the world tells you that in every rich country, services account for between two thirds and three quarters of what people want to spend their money on. And that's because the richer you are, you know, once you've bought the goods you need, you know, the food, the clothing, the housing, the, the white and brown goods you put in your house and the motor vehicles, then a bigger proportion of every extra dollar you earn goes on things like entertainment and financial services and health and education and recreation and financial services. Mm -hmm. yeah? you, you can only have so many cars in your garage. You can only have so many TVs and fridges and sofas and you know, carpets in your house. And you can only eat so much food. And so, you know, as countries get richer, just as individuals get richer, they spend more of their income on services. And because most services are not tradable, you know, although the internet is changing that a bit at the margin, but you can't import haircuts. You know, you can't import massages or time at the gym. You know, they have to be produced locally. And, you know, even medical services, although you can do a bit of telehealth over the internet, to, you know, you can go to Thailand to get a facelift if you really want one. Most services are produced locally. So unless you want to have an economy like the one that Stalin had, where, you know, the five-year plan said that the number one tractor factory had to turn out 300 uh, tractors a year, and if no one wanted to buy them, too bad. If you want to have an economy that produces the services and goods that people want to buy, then services are going to have to be between three quarters, uh, two-thirds and three-quarters of GDP as well. So if you say, you know, you want to produce the services that people want to buy, and 
you want to take advantage of the fact that your country's been well endowed with minerals and agricultural products that other people want to pay high prices for, then because the sum of the sector's shares of GDP can't add up to more than 100%, we have to have a smaller manufacturing sector or a smaller construction sector because that's all that's left. And because we in Australia want to live in big houses on expensive blocks of land, and because there's not many of us spread across a broad area, so we have to spend more on transport and on building railways and airports and stuff like that, it's really only manufacturing that's left that has to be smaller. And you can look at it in another way as well, which is if you look at countries that are successful at manufacturing, why is it? The answer is because they've got scale. And you have to have scale to be good at manufacturing because there's a lot of fixed costs in manufacturing. And if you don't have sufficient scale to reduce those fixed costs to a small number per unit, you'll never be competitive. So how do you get scale in manufacturing that allows you to be good at it? One, you have a big domestic market, you know, which the US has got, which Japan has got, which China has got. Or if you don't have a big ex domestic market, you're good at exporting which of course is what Germany and Switzerland and Sweden and Northern Italy, not Southern Italy, but Northern Italy, um, Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, Japan itself, uh, they're all good at it. And why are they good at it? Well, partly because they put a lot of effort into it and they have smart people, but also because they're geographically close to big markets. You know, all of the European economies are close to other European economies and they're part of a common market, which makes a big market. Korea is very close to Japan and China, as are Taiwan and so forth. And, you know, Canada has some manufacturing, most of it in that little bit of Ontario that is very close to the United States. Uh, you know, there's not too much manufacturing in Vancouver or Quebec or in Newfoundland. It's only the bit that's close to the United States. So apply that to the Australian context. We don't have a big domestic market. We're only 25 million people. And we find it hard to be good at exporting because we're so far away from everywhere else. And even though we like to think that the rise of Asia means that the world centre of gravity is moving closer to us, and that's true, it remains a fact, as you can verify by taking out a globe, that Berlin is closer to Beijing than Brisbane is, that Stockholm is closer to Shanghai than Sydney is, or that Mumbai is closer to Manchester than Melbourne is, and we can't do anything about that. So the only time that Australia has ever had a manufacturing sector that has been as close as a share of GDP here as it has been in some other rich countries is when, as we did for about 80 years, forced Australian households to pay unnecessarily high prices for what, off, what were often badly made goods, you know, think motor vehicles, in order to pretend to ourselves that we were good at manufacturing. And the key point is that as soon as Australians were given any choice about that matter, e.g. whether to buy Japanese cars or European cars or to buy Holdens and Fords, then they chose to buy uh, Japanese and European cars or more recently Korean cars rather than pay high prices for badly made cars that had six cylinder engines when Australians wanted more fuel efficient ones, just so we could have a few more people screwing nuts on the wheels of Holden's or equivalently sewing buttons on t-shirts and stuff like that. And the reality is that apart from a few specialized areas where we might have a comparative advantage, you know, and we might have those, for example, in pharmaceuticals, or we might have them in some very advanced areas of manufacturing, we are not going to be a manufacturing powerhouse and we shouldn't pretend to ourselves that we should. The last thing I want to say about this, and I know I've said a lot, but the last thing I want to say about this is that 
inadvertently, a lot of the things that the government and the Reserve Bank and state governments have done to help build that bridge to the other side of this pandemic have been measures that have the unintended side effect of pro prolonging the life of zombie firms. That is, firms that wouldn't otherwise exist, except for the fact that government is subsidising their wages through JobKeeper or through the cash flow for businesses program, that the Reserve Bank's record low interest rates is allowing them to be able to service their debt which they wouldn't be able to do if interest rates were at more normal levels, or that they actually don't have to service their debt because they're getting a debt service repayment holiday, or they're allowed to keep trading because it's not against the law for the time being to trade while insolvent as it normally is. And so bankruptcy proceedings are being extended. But the longer we do that, the, the longer it will be before we start to figure out what sort of it businesses, what sort of economic activities are going to be sustainable in the post-COVID world. Every dollar that's tied up in the capital of a zombie firm is a dollar that can't be used to help start a new business that will be sustainable. Every worker whose job in a zombie firm is propped up by JobKeeper is a worker who isn't going to be able to work, probably for higher wage, in a more productive job at a new firm. And so at some point, we've got to start transitioning away from preserving the old into building the new. And one of the things that we've got to do in order to make that happen is to stop preferencing small businesses just because they're small. You know, this is, I think, an ugly aspect of economic policy that has crept in over the last five years based on an ideological belief that has no foundation, namely that there's something morally superior about running a small business that makes you a better person than someone who works for a big business. You know, that's a prevalent belief in the branches of the Liberal Party, but there's absolutely no evidence for it. And the wrong belief that small business is, to use the phrase, the engine room of the economy. You know, there's absolutely no evidence for that, even though most people believe it. If you look at the statistics, small business has been a net shedder of jobs over the last 12 years. The only jobs in the private sector that have been created over that period on net have been at medium-sized and big firms. Small business is not innovative. ABS surveys show year after year that small business is less likely to introduce new products or services and less likely to engage in any form of new management or innovative practice than medium-sized or big businesses. What other figures produced by the tax office show is that one thing small business is really good at is not paying tax. You know, most people think that it's big businesses and rich folks who aren't paying their fair share of taxation. What the tax office figures show is that of the $38 billion or so that they think they should collect but don't, 49.7% is not paid by small businesses. Whereas only about 7% of what the tax office thinks it should collect but doesn't is not paid by big business. And about 3% of it is not paid by high net worth individuals. So what is the penalty that small businesses get for being the most successful tax avoiders in the country is the legal right to pay five percentage points less of their income in tax than everybody else. And what this does is not to create employment or to encourage innovation, but to stifle it. And so what we ought to be doing, in my humble opinion, is not preferencing small businesses simply because they're small, but preferencing new businesses.
And there are five reasons why we should do that. One is that new businesses are much more likely to be started in industries that have a long-term sustainable future, whereas small businesses are in the sectors they're in basically because great-grandpa was in it when he started up the business and nobody in the business wants to change. So that's the first point. The second thing is that new businesses are much more likely to create jobs than small businesses are because new businesses need to employ people in order to get going and to attract customers and to bring their products to market. The third thing is that new businesses are much more likely to innovate than small businesses because that's why they're set up in the first place. The main reason anyone starts a new business today is because they've got an idea for a new product or service that they want to try out or because they've thought of a new way of producing some product or service that they want to try out and that's why they're starting the business to do it. The fourth reason that you want to do this is because there aren't as many new businesses as there are small ones. Most small, most new businesses will be small, of course, but there are an awful lot of small businesses around that are not new. In fact, most small businesses are old. So if you confine your preferences to new businesses, it doesn't cost you as much. Or alternatively, you can make the preferences for new business much more generous. You could say, instead of saying to every small business, just because you're small, we're going to tax you at 25% rather than 30%. And as the figures show, that actually doesn't create one single new job at all. It just foregoes revenue. We could actually say to new businesses, if you make any money, we're only going to tax you at 10% for the first five years of re-existence rather than 25. And it won't cost as much because there aren't as many of them. And then the fifth reason for preferencing new businesses rather than small ones is that there's nothing a new business can do to stop itself from becoming an old one, except going out of business, in which case the concessions don't cost you anything. But the point is that there are no perverse incentives here. Whereas we know that small businesses often choose to stop growing at the point just below the, the point at which they cease to be a small business for tax purposes. We know that from payroll tax figures. And although we don't know it yet from the company income tax figures because the concessions haven't been around for long enough, I will bet you that in 10 years' time, we will be able to show a whole lot of companies have decided to stay just below the threshold at which they become eligible to pay 25% of their income in tax rather than 30. So for all of those reasons, I think one of the other things we need to be doing is moving away from this crazy idea of preferencing small businesses just because they're small and instead start to preference new businesses and to preference them more generously than we are able to preference small businesses. And that will help shape the post-COVID world far more effectively than deciding we're going to be self-sufficient in widgets or kidding ourselves that we're going to be a manufacturing powerhouse. Wow. Fascinating. <laughs> I, I love that, Saul, because... Um, I mean, one of the things I've been really concerned about is the inequality around, you know, the, the distribution of unemployed people and how yeah. the, they disproportionately affect young people and women. Um, and so, you know, I'm very interested in, you know, your views about new businesses and how that might actually encourage um, young people to sort of start a business um, and, and help with that innovation piece. Yeah. Well, I think that's right, Audrey. Um, certainly, it was very obvious in the early stages of the pandemic that job losses had disproportionately impacted women and young people. Interestingly enough, since about the end of April, when the labour market troughed, 
women and young people have actually been much better than men and older people at getting their old jobs back or at finding new ones. So that as of early September, the gender gap in terms of job losses has just about disappeared. And so has the age gap. But I think the reason for that is that JobKeeper has done more to protect women's jobs than men's jobs, right. in part because women are typically less well paid, and therefore the flat rate of JobKeeper of $1,500 has saved more women's jobs than men's because it covers more of the cost of a woman's job than a man's job and of a young person's job than the job of someone in their, say, 30s or 40s. What will be an interesting test of that is when, from the beginning of October, and then again from the beginning of January next year, the level of JobKeeper steps down. And if we see, as I suspect we might, the gender gap and the age gap emerging again, because more women lose their jobs and more young people lose their jobs once the level of JobKeeper payment is stepped down, then the point which you raise will once again become very relevant. We'll need to start thinking about what do we do to create more jobs for women and more jobs for young people. The answer will not be the government's favoured uh, answer, which is infrastructure spending because construction is a really blokey industry. You know, 88% of the jobs in construction are for men. The only industry that is more blokey than that is mining. And what the government will need to do if, as I suspect happens when they turn down JobSeeker, that the gender gap and the age gap emerges again, is to ask themselves, you know, okay, infrastructure spending does create jobs, but it doesn't create jobs for women and it doesn't create many jobs for young people. What are we going to do about that? And they're going to have to look at other things. And I think, you know, giving tax breaks for new business isn't the whole solution to that, but it's almost certainly part of it yeah. that at the moment nobody is thinking about. What type of businesses, and I'm not asking for investment advice here, mm -hmm. so and I'm certainly not giving it, <laughs> Larry, but... <yeah. laughs> but you know, what we're looking for here, because like, you know, if you look at a range of the people we work with, there's telecoms, there's people in digital, there's health, investment, local government, uh, seafood or food, uh, um, education, rural and regional property development, manufacturing. Um, uh, and I really take your point on manufacturing. And I, I think there's a better way of doing it if we were to put our heads together on, particularly on um, smart products or smart goods that yeah. operate out of um, owning a uh, physical product, but the real businesses in the data and the, the application that you can have uh, from a network or you can own a network such as, you know, what the iPhone has done. You know, the iPhone should be sold for 20 bucks so that, uh, that um, Apple can make even more money out of the data. Um, and the digital services, but coming back and looking at it, um, what, you know, we're, we're trying to, in the COVID economy thinking is to say, well, okay, there's been this big work from home rush. So there's got to be a telework support industry there, which is, uh, can be supported. You know, if you think about all of the things that are done in an office, they need to be done on site at someone's house, or they need to be, there needs to be hubs where people can go and work because they can't work at home because of the kids are there or whatever, but they still want to work from a, a remote perspective rather than 
going into into the city or going into a CBD. Um, so then then there's as we've talked about prior, there's what we call pan safe, which is pandemic safe, because you know pandemics are a way of life now. You know we've got COVID nineteen, but climate change is revealing all sorts of stuff, and equally as people start to move around the world, you know we're we're prone to do all sorts of things and understanding pandemics don't come from China. They, they will come from America. They'll come from everywhere you can think of, um, particularly with melting permafrost in the, in the Northern hemisphere as such. Um, so, you know, pan-safe is like, how do I become pan-safe? You know, I'm talking to some people who in that domain of pan-safe are, are um, developing, um, you know, an imaging technology that's cheap enough you can put in a pub and when someone walks in and they've got the slightest hint of whatever, it goes off um, and there's the 15-second um, the, uh, test uh, that, you know, down the track, not going to happen anywhere soon, but 15-second check without shoving it down up your nose, down your throat. All of that to the pan safe as we're seeing it. We're, we're also seeing, you know, um, changes in education. You know, the, uh, yep. the institutional model of education has got to pretty much be on its last legs. You know, there was the great conversation that said, you know, we've worked with universities and there's the, uh, we can't go online, we can't do online education. COVID hits, bang, online education. Yep. Um, that automatically, um, and the no travel, set students all over to either work from home, uh, work uh, remotely, uh, study remotely or whatever. So then you've got a whole bunch of other players coming in offering maybe better um, uh, services in the education area. And you've got the whole thing that's happening in America is like, um, what, I'm going to pay $50,000 for a degree at, at uh, uh, Whitestone University and I'm doing it online, you know, or not a degree I'm for a, um, a subject. Of course, I'm going to do that online. Where's the where's the value in that? Apart yep. from the brand equity as such. Um, but, you know, we're seeing all of these things start to emerge because I, I, I agree with you in terms of the need for new business. But it's that is adapted to COVID normal in a COVID economy. Mm -hmm. What are some of those that you're, you're seeing? You know, if it's not manufacturing, I mean, I can see us holding on to mining. But it seems to be, you know, the, um, you know, still nurturing on the nipple from a long time ago. You know, I can remember when I was born in 1950 and I can remember all of my schooling was taken to farms, shown wheat and sheep in Western Australia, taken down to the port. This is where it goes into silos and it goes. And then around about 60, 62, bang, the mining boom takes off in Western Australia and you're learning about minerals and mining and all that sort of stuff. But I don't see anything else that really, uh, from, a, from an Australian perspective, mm. that we're good at that the rest of the world wants. You know, and I, I see um, America having done, uh, done a lot of the leading there, uh, not necessarily manufacturing good cars, but that's come down from Asia. But the, you know, the Asian region and the Asian innovation hasn't... that hasn't picked up in Australia. We're very, very short on um, really, you know, we don't, you know, we have Atlassian. Everyone goes, well, we've got Atlassian. Well, you know, like Atlassian's one. There's like millions of those in America and millions of them in um, 
emerging in India and China, China in particular, and out of Taiwan and wherever it might be. You know, we're, we're uh, looking at the emergence of Vietnam with a, a client up there. And, you know, that's about to, you know, ex expand and exp explore global markets in the IT area. So, you know, what is it that we could be good at um, that will employ people rather than saying, well, you know, automation in mining is decreasing jobs, not increasing jobs. Yeah. Well, I, I, the first thing I'd say, Larry, is um, you've confessed to being eight years older than me. Um, <laughs> uh, we've both got, unlike, unlike Audrey, we've both got very grey hair, uh, but I wouldn't have thought you looked eight years older than me, so, you know, so well done. Um, let me try and kind of respond to that very interesting question in two different ways. Um, one, just by talking about my own experience and then trying to talk about something else completely different. But just before I do that, one other thought that occurs to me, of course, is that, as I mentioned before, in a country as rich as Australia, you know, between two thirds and three quarters of economic activity is in the provision of services. And most services are not tradable. Now, as I say, technology is altering the margin of that to some extent, and it'll probably alter it more as time goes on. But there's still a whole lot of services that we as human beings are always going to need, are always going to want, that can't be imported or traded. And so a lot of the jobs that people are going to do are going to be in providing those services to people. And, you know, we sometimes tend to turn our nose up at services. We think that there's something inherently more noble about being employed, producing something you can drop on your foot yeah. than about providing a service. You know, we tend to deride services industries as either flipping hamburgers or taking in each other's washing as if there's something wrong with doing those things, yeah. but as if that was the only thing that the services economy entails, whereas the services economy embraces all sorts of really vital things from the care of children and elders, you know, which we all want and which enable us to do other things, to, uh, you know, attending to, to financial services and entertainment and recreation and travel and financial services and, you know, all these sorts of things that are part of modern life and will become more so, and which, you know, you can't really source from Wuhan or Mumbai or, you know, from, yeah. from somewhere in Vietnam or so. so. So we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that there are always going to be a lot of good, well-paying and safe jobs in the service. I mean, there are also going to be crappy, badly paid jobs too. And, you know, a lot of those are in tourism to pick an industry that people think is popular. You know, tourism is great for uh, people who run big hotels and it's great for airlines. And it's probably good for those small investors who are able to rent out a room in their house or to rent out their shack for, you know, $250 a night for half the year. But if you look at the jobs that are in tourism, most of them are part-time, most of them are poorly paid, most of them have very little career prospects. And as we've seen, they're very vulnerable to anything that interrupts people's willingness to, or ability to go on holidays. So, you know, we, it's something I suspect we need to think about. And certainly here in Tasmania, where 17% of the jobs are directly or indirectly linked to tourism, compared with 10% nationally, is, you know, we need to ask ourselves, have we become over-dependent on that? Yeah. But let me just go back, as I say, to a personal example and then to a broader one. You know, I found that COVID-19 and the death of the conference circuit 
has kind of eliminated what was my biggest single source of revenue. You know, about half the revenue in my business over the last five years has come from talking at conferences. And although that will probably come back in some way, it'll never go back to what it once was because businesses have discovered that they don't need to send their staff off uh, on planes to expensive hotels in nice seaside resorts to attend expensive conferences where they can hear things from expensive speakers like me. They can do all of that from the comfort of their home and offices in the same way that we're talking, you know, by Zoom or Teams or exactly. WebEx or whatever. And another reality is that the market won't pay for a presentation over Zoom or Teams what they used to pay for something in person. Now, I don't like that because as far as I'm concerned, there's no less work involved in preparing a Zoom presentation and giving it, you know, all the slides. And that. there's no less work for me in doing that than there is for in person. But the market reality, which I can't change, is that they won't pay as much for that. Yeah. So I've got to find other ways of generating income or accept the fact that I'm going to live on half of what I expected to live on. And that's forcing me to think, for example, about how can I use my website yeah. to generate revenue. And so, yeah, only four weeks ago, I put new stuff on my website behind a paywall. And what I'm now trying to figure out is how much will people pay for that stuff? And, you know, uh, who are my competitors? You know, some of them, the banks who will give this sort of stuff away free to their customers. You know, I'm a customer of two of the banks, so I get it for free. But I want to make, I want to find ways of charging people, getting people to pay for the stuff that I do. And so I'm sort of experimenting with different types of pricing. And, you know, I'm going to be putting it up or down depending on how people respond to the initial prices we've established. It's a sort of real life yeah. example. I'm trying to figure out where the demand curve is or indeed if there is a demand curve at all. And I suspect there are lots of people in that position and I don't know what the answer is, but the reality, the new reality is forcing me to find out if I want to make an income. And so, as I say, I suspect there are a lot of, you know, big businesses as well as micro ones like me who are in that. The second thing I'd say about it, which is not really personal at all, is that there is potentially a fabulous opportunity for regional Australia in all of this. Because I think one of the lasting consequences of COVID, and you know, you, you're talking about, um, uh, what was the precise word you used? Not COVID safe, but uh, what was the word you were uh, using? COVID normal. COVID normal. And there was, uh, there was another word you used as well, too, which I just... Can safe, I think. Can safe, that's it. That's can safe. Yeah, pan-safe, pandemic-safe. Yes, that's the yeah. one I was trying to think of. Um, so there are lots of aspects of that that challenge the way that, in particular, white-collar jobs are done in big cities. You know, I think people are now going to be much more reluctant to work in high-rise offices, you know, which some people might start to call vertical cruise ships. They're going to be perhaps more reluctant to live in high-rise apartments where if they live in Melbourne, they could all of a sudden find themselves locked in, surrounded by squads of aggressive police who see their job as being in part to fulfil the functions of the state revenue office, you know, which has been Victoria's experience. And, you know, that might not be... And, the, and they don't want to spend as much time commuting because they now know it's yeah. possible to do their jobs without having to spend up to two hours at each end of the day, commuting, you know, from, say, places like Frankston 
to Melbourne or from, you know, in Sydney from, you know, the northern end of Wollongong or from Lake Macquarie down to Sydney. You don't have to do that. Now, there's a fabulous opportunity here for regional communities to kind of play host to some of these activities and the businesses who do them to be able to say, you know, you can either work from home or if you do have to come into a hub, you know, it'll only take you 20 minutes at most. You can do it in your own car. Uh, you can educate your kids in ways to go back to your point about, you know, the, just as the chalk and talk model of teaching has given way to other in-classroom methods, now we're saying in-classroom or in-lecture theatre teaching be challenged by other ways of delivering educational products. You know, this is a huge opportunity for regional communities to say, you can undo all these things in towns of you know, 50, 75, 100,000, 200,000. You don't have to be in a city of five, six or seven million in able to do all those things. Now, there's a challenge for government there to help build the infrastructure, the transport infrastructure, the communications infrastructure, you know, the 5G and the broadband that yep. makes all of that possible in regional centres where at the moment, sometimes the internet can feel like you're still in Siberia or somewhere like that. <laughs> or where there's no You've mobile. Been to you have been to yeah. Woodham. Well, you know, I mean, sometimes we have aspects of that here in Tasmania as well, too. Yeah. Um, and so there's this huge opportunity. And if you think about the demand, what does this mean for housing affordability, for example? Yeah. Yeah. If people can pursue decent career challenging and rewarding opportunities, but don't have to spend, you know, the best part of five times their annual income buying a house and then servicing a mortgage for the rest of their lives and possibly commuting, as I say, an hour or two in each direction every day just so that you can do a job in the CBD of Sydney or Melbourne. You know, there are potential enormous opportunities for reshaping the way Australians live and work and reshaping the way Australia, the country, operates that you know, have enormous potential out of this. And so, again, I think that's part of shaping the post-COVID world, the COVID norm Normal, the pan-safe world, as you, as you call it, is actually thinking about you know, how we can rewrite the geography of Australia in ways that could make the, uh, not necessarily the material living standards, but the lived experience of so many Australians much more pleasant than it's become. Well, I'm going to close with a question that we've only got five minutes to answer. And <laughs> the reason why I've left it to last is I think we, there's a whole new, whole other uh, discussion we should have on this at some point, but um, the debt, um, the, 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 and it's at a global level that's sort of, um, it's there and it's been continued to be there in all its derivative forms of debt. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> uh, domestic, sovereign, which at the end of the day is all taxpayer debt. You know, the only way that uh, sovereign debt is paid is through people, paying it. Uh, then there's domestic debt. Um, and this is, you know, uh, you've, you've already said it's a lot of that is, is already bound up in low interest rates. But you know, for some high risk businesses, it's at a higher interest rate. But um, in zombie firms that more than likely have to go bankrupt. So that increases the, um, the debt. Um, and in particular, uh, if you look at that debt build-up, and you know our experience in um, uh, in two thousand and six, seven, and eight, we were working in the U.S. Uh, at a state and community level in different states. You know, yep. New England, uh, the South, 
uh, of and the south of um, the US. And we kept on hearing um, uh, these predatory lending, about predatory lending. We're working a lot in Latino, but mostly in African-American communities and looking at economic development and it's all that sort of stuff. And But this condition kept on coming up about uh, predatory lending. And, uh, you know, we tra tracked it down to, uh, obviously, to CDOs, collateralized debt obligations. Yep, yep, yep. And uh, we, you could actually see, you know, I can remember, it's in our book, actually, where I'm, I'm there and I'm looking at this and I went and I looked at some credit line ace information that which showed directly at 2007, 2008, when a lot of those mortgages were going to come off the free, free interest and all that yep. and become payable at a higher rate, etc. And also then I can remember reading, seeing a cafe and reading in the New York Times. It said, um, you know, oh, uh, the, all of these CDOs, well, all of these uh, predatory loans have been collateralized into CDOs. They've been securitized. They've been sold. And uh, as job lots almost, and uh, they're all over the world, and they're all going to go bad. Now, that was in the New York Times. I cut the piece out, and I went around to people that I was working with and said, look, have you seen this? This is a problem. And people said, no, no. And in those days, it was like in the sort of the affordable housing area, it was uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. They're not going to have a problem. No, no, it'll all be okay. And we all know what happened with the GFC based on CDOs. Now, just uh, with all the debt, and particularly if we're seeing, and, you know, appropriately so, if they are a zombie uh, organisation or business, they're going to go bankrupt. And, you know, we've got this whole, you know, <laughs> I find it a little bit amazing that, you know, you can trade, um, keep on trading when you're not liquid um, up until 31st December. And that's understandable, but what happens in January 2021? So we're looking at this growing ferment of debt and the new CDO, which is a CLO with the collateralized loan obligation. Uh, and, you know, which for our audience, collateralized loan obligation is the same as a collateralized debt obligation, except that you know, CDOs have mostly gone away, but a CLO is um, a, an amalgam uh, uh, that have been put into securities and sold of um, uh, loans to distressed businesses at relatively high interest rates yep. and uh, they've, they've been sold uh, as I think they're AAA and they're because based on a correlation factor that says that there's no way that all businesses will be in trouble at the same time because you'll get one sector in trouble at one time another another time so if you've got that spread you're not going to have a problem all of a sudden we have COVID which impacts everyone now, the uh, federal government uh, in America, based on, I think, Dodd-Frank, said, um, now that's the two senators who helped put the yeah, yeah. stuff together uh, for uh, um, the financial services industry, said that banks were not allowed to hold CLOs. Um, Mnuchin came out just recently and said banks aren't holding CLOs in America, but they are. And our little research we've done has shown that in um, uh, America, UK, Europe, banks are holding CLOs. I don't know what the um, proportion is of securitised uh, CLOs in Australia in terms of, you know, we know what the CDOs did. They were an into small and medium, uh, uh, local government authorities and everywhere. Um, and we don't know what, where they all are, but it's another virus that's out there 
yep. that is waiting to fall over um, sometime between now and that early uh, 2021. So I'm thinking bankruptcies, debts, uh, CLOs, you, you know, what, what are we thinking about over the next three to six months in terms of this all coming to a head? Well, of course, you remember that part of the mythology of the era you were describing in the lead up to the financial crisis was that securitization enabled the distribution of risk to those best able to bear it. Whereas the truth was that what it enabled was the distribution of risk to those least capable of understanding it. Exactly. And that's, yeah, that's why the C, DOs and all of those things ended up in the hands of such unsophisticated investors. Yes. And the mistake, although we didn't have nearly as bad an experience of that in Australia, we had some of it, but the mistake which, for example, people like Ian Harper have been honest enough to recognise is that we built, you know, post the Wallace inquiry, a system of prudential supervision that relied on disclosure. You know, it said, provided you disclose all of the risks, things will be all right. And the assumption was that investors would read these 500-page long product disclosure statements and make intelligent, informed decisions about the risks they were taking on based on their diligent and thorough reading of these statements. And that was, of course, all bollocks. Whereas what we need to do, and again, as I say, people like Ian Harper have been honest enough to acknowledge that, you know, they got some of this wrong and that we need to build a different supervisory regime in which we sort of recognise that there are sophisticated investors who basically ought to be allowed to do whatever they want to do and a whole lot of unsophisticated investors who need to be protected, not only from their own ignorance and its consequences, but from the willingness and capacity of rapacious, nefarious individuals to exploit their ignorance and lack of knowledge. And the US has some ways of doing that with the way that they quarantine certain products for professional investors only. I don't think they enforce that well enough, but the basis of a workable system is in that distinction between professional investors, you know, who are, allowed to be exposed to and can invest in a wider range of riskier products than sort of mum and... What we're seeing there with the mom at the moment is some sort of explosive device with the the wick is burning. Yeah. Yeah. Like the debt, the bankruptcies, you know, and and because what we're about is saying to our, our people, our audience and our clients is, know this is happening. Don't be shocked by it. Change ahead of change. Prepare for that so that we can get through this. Right. And, of course, the other point which I alluded to earlier is that, you know, one of the risks that's never gone away and is now being increased again are the risks associated with the consequences for asset prices of all the quantitative easing and other things that are going on. You know, that one other way, I mean, part of the problem is that no one who's doing central bank, uh, no one who's doing 
unorthodox monetary policy. No one in the central banks, nor really anyone in the academic world who studies central banks or in the market world who try to anticipate and profit from anticipating what central banks will do, none of them really understand how quantitative easing works. You know, I mean, to some extent, it has worked in preventing worst cases. Certainly what they did in March prevented the financial system from melting down as it was threatening to do at those worst moments. You know, when the US dollar shot up and stock prices fell and credit spreads, credit spreads widened. And, you know, because financial, because central banks knew what to do because of what they'd done in 2008, um, you know, they did, they did it again and they did more of it and it worked for the stated objectives. We also know from experience that one of the ways that quantitative easing works to the extent that it does is by encouraging people to take on more risk, to move out along the risk curve, and that inflates asset prices. Now, there are all sorts of distributional consequences of that. You know, one of the things that, you know, protest movements, if I can call them that, have got right, is that, you know, quantitative easing of the way in which the world dealt with the financial crisis has helped to make the rich richer. And it might have protect some of the, protected some of the poor from being as unemployed for as long as they might otherwise have been, but it certainly hasn't done anything to lift their wages. And most of the benefits have gone to rich folks in the form of asset price appreciation on which they don't pay as much tax as if they'd earned it in income, if they pay any tax at all. And, you know, those sort of consequences are not well understood, but what we can observe simply by looking at the data and what markets are doing is that those problems have gotten bigger. We haven't figured out how to solve them, but we've gotten bigger. A problem that I don't think we should worry about, especially not here in Australia, is about government debt. You know, there are some people who engage in a lot of hand-bringing about the fact that federal government debt might be a trillion dollars, or that, you know, in other countries, not Australia, but other countries, debt might get, government debt might be more than 100% of GDP. And, and it's in this context, the, the sort of simple analogies between household budgets and government budgets that Mrs. Thatcher used to draw and that other prime ministers, including our own, often like to weave when they're talking to real audiences are misleading. You know, households have to pay off their debt before they die because they don't want to leave debts to their children. They want to leave assets to their children. But governments in most circumstances don't die. And if you look back over Australian history, there actually haven't been many years in the 120 that we've had as an independent country, or you go back further into when states were colonies, there haven't been many years when governments haven't had some debt. You know, the Costello years were unusual in that respect, that we had no net debt. For, most, for the first 50 or 60 years of Australia's existence as an independent nation, we had much higher levels of government debt as a proportion of GDP than we have now or than we are going to have as a result of COVID in the next 50 years. And governments didn't feel any urge to pay it off. You know, Sir Robert Menzies' time in office, which was, what, 19 years or so all up, I think in that time he only ran one budget service because he didn't think it was necessary to raise taxes or cut government spending a lot in order to pay back the debt that had been run up to win World War II. The way we got it down as a percentage of GDP was through a combination of financial repression, forcing people to buy bonds at low interest rates, which I'm not suggesting we repeat, and high inflation and strong growth. And 
if we get things right, we, we probably couldn't create high inflation in this kind of world, even if we wanted to. But the way to get debt down is not by running budget surpluses, which to do that, you have to increase taxes or cut government spending, which might make the recession worse. That's what happened in Greece, for example. Yeah. The way to do it is to engineer an economy which is growing strongly so that, as the maths puts it, the rate of growth in the economy, G, is greater than the interest rate on debt, R. And you can show as a matter of fairly simple arithmetic that as long as G is greater than R, that is, as long as the growth rate of nominal GDP is greater than the interest on debt, then you don't have a problem. And I don't think we in Australia in particular will have a problem with that. I mean, obviously, you know, there will come a point where we do need to start putting the budget back in a sustainable footing and to stop debt increasing as a proportion of GDP, because then it can eventually got out of hand. But at the moment and for the foreseeable future, that's the least of our problems. You know, since the 30th of March, the... Australian Office of Financial Management, which is the bit of treasury that does the borrowing on behalf of the federal government that finances the deficit, has received offers of $3.50 for every dollar of bonds they have wanted to sell, and the offers that the AOFM hasn't seen necessary to accept have carried interest rates that have been three basis points on average higher. That is 0.03 of a percentage point higher than the yields on the bids which they have accepted. You know, financing this deficit is the least of our problems. And we don't need to worry about about government debt. In aggregate in Australia and in most other Western countries, we don't need to worry about too much about corporate debt. There are, as you said, you know, a lot of companies, mostly small ones, who are carrying unsustainable levels of debt. And eventually their bankers or they themselves are going to have to bite the bullet and say the gig is up. But because they're small businesses, the amounts don't add up to a big percentage of GDP, even though there are lots, probably hundreds of thousands of businesses in this position. The amount they individually owe sums to a fairly small percentage of GDP. And that's true of most other Western economies where business investment has been pretty slow over the last 10 years and where corporate debt as a proportion of GDP is not very high. It's a big problem in China. For example, where corporate debt is very high, although most of that corporate debt is actually owed by state-owned enterprises to state-owned banks. So in a sense, it's almost part of an internal uh, government problem rather than a big corporate one. But I suspect resolving it will end up creating a renminbi crisis at some point four or five years down the track. But that's another story. The area of debt that we do have to worry about in Australia is household debt where, you know, along with Switzerland and the Netherlands, we're the world champions in terms of debt as a proportion of GDP. Now, again, that's manageable provided interest rates stay low. And even if house prices were to drop a lot, which is possible, although I'm not convinced it's likely, I mean, I think it's quite possible house prices could fall 10 to 20% from current levels. I think it's unlikely that they'll fall 30 to 40% as some are assuming. And I hope they don't rise from current levels. But if property prices were to drop, say, 10 to 20%, and more folks than is the case at the moment found themselves in negative equity, as long as they can continue to service their debts, that's not really a problem. 
What would be a problem would be if we kept on expanding household debt at the rate we have done over the last 20 years, because that would mean we'd be pushing house prices up even more. And instead of the home ownership rate for people under 40 being the lowest it's been since 1947, it might end up being the lowest it's been since, say, 1921 or something which would not be a good thing. It would further widen the inequality in the distribution of wealth between the young and old that nobody seems to care about anymore, except maybe the young. And even they don't seem to care about it nearly as much as I would kind of expected to. Maybe they take their revenge out on their parents' generation for screwing up their chance of becoming homeowners by refusing to move out of their parents' homes, you know, and expecting their meals cooked and their clothes washed and a blind eye to turned to whoever they bring to breakfast the following morning you know i don't know but it, you know it does surprise me there isn't more anger among young people about the way that their parents generation has rigged the housing market against them but you know, they do seem remarkably quiescent about it but what we don't want to see the kind of debt we should as citizens be worried about here in australia is just having ever more household debt because households do have to pay that off unless they want to leave negative equity or debt to their children. And even the baby boomers, your generation and mine, who were pretty selfish by the standards of our parents and grandparents' generations who went before us, and we're less altruistic about future generations than our parents do. I mean, the next generation, gener millennials and those who come beyond, are probably the first generations in 200 years for whom it's a reasonable bet that they won't live better than their parents. And we don't seem to be all that fussed about that, nor do we seem to be all that fussed as baby boomers about climate change, which is what our kids and grandchildren are going to have to deal with if we don't do anything about it. So our generation's pretty selfish. But you know, even most of our generation don't really want to leave debts as opposed to assets to our kids. And if we actually do really mean that rather than just say it, then we've got to keep a lid on the overall level of household debt. Wow. A lot to take in there, Saul. And I... Uh, I think we've got to do this again sometime. Um, and I just want to say thank you so much for your time. Yes, um, absolutely. Thank you, Saul. And, you know, you and I take the um, Baby Boomer Selfishness Prize and we thank uh, Audrey for uh, being part of this and listening and hope that somehow the mess we created, that Audrey can fix it, being a young woman. <laughs> going to take a couple of generations <laughs> yeah. so thank you so much mate and um thank we'll you, speak again soon. all right it's been a pleasure hopefully we'll do it again soon thanks larry thanks, thanks audrey thank you we hope you've enjoyed this straight talk in the COVID economy podcast thank you for listening and please subscribe on your preferred podcast platform for more free content that will enhance your understanding of this new COVID economy and the actions that you can take to leverage disruptive change, join the Resilient Futures Network at www.resilientfutures.com slash get started. And please support our partner, Impact Africa Network at www.impactafrica.network. We need all the support we can to help them build their own incubator. We know that there are many other great podcasts out there and your time is precious and you chose to listen to this great talk in the COVID economy. And we appreciate that. Thank you.